Um, well, I want to tell you, so that's what Al wants me to talk about. And I'm not the only one that feels that way, maybe the only one here, but out of here, you know, the young generation, um, 25% of the young generation are nuns, have never been in a church, didn't grow up in a church, have never been in it. Generally, they have very negative attitudes about Christianity, have rejected it, and that number, they say, by the time the next generation comes, is easily going to be 50% or more who've never been in a church and have zero interest. And part of in this environment in our culture is actually attacks on the law is part of what's behind it. The new atheist, this is a really big thing. Um, Richard Dawkins has said, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, vindictive, misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, and words I can't even say. Uh, I mean, I can't read or pronounce. Uh, he is a capricious, malevolent bully. Christopher Hitchens Specifically, speaking of the law, says the Bible may indeed does contain a warrant for trafficking in humans, for slavery, for bride price, because it was put together by crude, uncultured human animals. Uh, you know, to many people, the law looks repressive and repulsive. Um, and if you read anything about this and what people think of it, you find a lot of descriptions of what people think of the law. It's baffling, it's bizarre, shocking, you know, harsh, barbaric. There's so many descriptions. I have a friend uh, who comes from an Islamic background who left Islam, and the reason he left Islam uh, was because of the laws of Islam. He felt they were so cruel and barbaric in this modern world and how they're carried out in his country, punishments and things. And he started exploring Christianity, and then he came to me one day, and he said, well, I'm reading your book, and he says, you've got the same laws we do in Islam. He said, I found them. They're all there. And he said, so why should I have any interest in, in, in your Bible if it has the same stuff that I rejected in Islam? Um, good question, right? So he and I, so I'm going to share with you the conversation we had over coffee, uh, over several coffees, actually. Um, and not only, not only do people find it repulsive, but it is becoming, you know, the sexual ethics of the Bible are being rejected, right? Pretty obvious. And one of the main common arguments for rejecting the biblical sexual ethic is the law. Uh, Dr. Laura, you remember her? Is she even on the radio anymore? I don't remember. You, I think it was in the 90s. She spoke about the sex, moral, biblical moral sexual ethics on a show and got a letter from a listener who said, thank you for doing so much to educate people regarding the law. I do need some advice from you, however, regarding some other elements of God's laws and how to follow them. Most of my male friends get their hair trimmed, including the hair around their temples, even though this is expressly forbidden by the law. So how should they die? Am I morally obligated to kill them myself, or should I just take them to the police and let them do it? I know from the law that touching the skin of a dead pig makes me unclean. So may I still play football if I wear gloves? I think that's why all the players wear gloves these days, is because of the law. Uh, it used to be stickum. Do you remember that from the old days, Raiders? Uh, my uncle has a farm. Uh, he violates the law by planting two different crops in the same field, as does his wife, who wears garments made of two different kinds of thread, cotton and polyester. 
Is it really necessary that we go through all the trouble of getting the whole town together to stone them? Couldn't we just burn them to death at a private family affair? I know you've studied these things extensively and thus enjoy considerable expertise in such matters, so I'm confident you can help. Thank you again for reminding us that God's word is unternal and unchanging. You're adoring fan. So do you get the critique? The, the, a lot of the rejection of the moral, the sexual ethics in the Bible is this critique. The people are saying, here's a book, and when you take this law, you're picking and choosing the sexual ethics out, but you won't follow any of the rest of that law. In fact, you violate a lot of that law. And therefore, what you say about sexual ethics doesn't apply anymore because that's an old and outdated book, right? I mean, you're hearing this a lot. Um, so, here's the question. What do we do with the law? Do we tuck our tails and run and hide? Hope nobody ever asks us this question. Even not sure what to do with some of our own struggles with the law. Um, or is there another option? And I would say there is. You know, from the very beginning, Satan's strategy has been to attack the Word of God from Genesis 3. And I think that's, he's, he's launching a massive frontal assault on the Word of God. And I think the law is a big part of it. Now, I need a little grace this morning, if you don't mind. As I work my way through this, I need you to hang with me as, my, as I build my case. Because I might say a thing or two that taken out of context, would, you might be like, well, what was that? But if you hang with me, I think it'll make sense. So can, can you guys grant me some grace today? Scott will. Thank you, Scott. Um, if somebody does not grant grace, maybe we can have a... Uh, <laughs> never mind. I say afterwards, we could apply the law and have a stoning or something. Um, okay. Before looking at the law, I need to say a few things about the law. Um, it was not a list of rules. It was actually, um, it was a whole law code for the nation of Israel. It was their law book. And a lot of people really don't understand that. It was their law book. And it contained three, three kinds of law. And probably a lot of us are familiar with this, but I still need to say it if you don't know it. There is the moral law which were universal, ultimate moral principles. There is the ceremonial law, laws about cleanliness, food stuff, like Tim, the whole shellfish thing, sorry, is in the ceremonial law. Uh, he enjoys seafood a lot. And then there's the civil law, which was case laws for judges to use in applying the law. And the law is so complex, there's so much I could say about it today. I've got to leave a lot on the table, if you don't mind, and I'm sure you don't mind. Um, but a lot of what I'm going to say is going to relate almost exclusively to the civil law, somewhat to the ceremonial, but especially to the civil law, okay? So a lot of what I'm saying is, is about the civil law. One more thing before we plow into this. I need to say something about understanding the Bible properly, reading it well. There are three really important rules that a lot of people don't follow, including a lot of Jesus followers. And that is, number one, we have to know the whole, the unfolding story, the whole story, which I think is why Al's taking us through the story, really important. Two, we have to know the text historical context, whatever we're looking at, we have to know the context, and then we have to know that text place in the law, or in that story, sorry, not in the law, that text place in the story. So, how, so as I sat with my friend, how do you address this problem of the law? So first, you, again, you have to know the unfolding story. Um, you can't just take a text and look at it without seeing the larger movement of the Bible. Um, the Bible is an unfolding story. It has an arc, a trajectory to it. it. The story has three parts. It's a drama in three parts. Creation, 
God creates everything exactly how he intends. There's the fall, and then you have a long period of the corruption of what he intended. And then eventually is restoration, where God restores everything back to the way he intended, or recreation, that God is going to recreate, create a new creation that will be back to the original design that he had in that first creation. Um, and included in that is the, is the restoration of his ethical ideals that were at place in that creation. In Genesis 1 and 2, there are some very foundational things that relate to ethics and morality. The most important is every human being created in God's image, worthy of dignity and respect, and that all humans are equal, right? That's, that's in that ideal. Marriage and human sexuality are addressed. The ideal of that, human sexuality, is in Genesis 1 and 2. And the human vocation, what are we called to in the world, is, is addressed too in Genesis 1 and 2. And in this story, and by the way, it's creation, corruption, and it's restoration through redemption. It's through the death and resurrection of Jesus, through his redemption, that we're able to get to that restoration. And so, as Al has said several times, when you read the Bible, there is a progress of revelation through the Bible. As God reveals more and more through the Bible, he gives us more details, better understanding of what he's doing in the world. So, it unfolds over time. So we've got, anytime you read the Bible, you have to keep the story in mind. Asking, where am I in the story? Where have I been? Where's the story going? That's really important. So that one makes sense? I think that's really important. So number two, the second principle is you have to know the historical context of the text. And specifically the law, you cannot read the law in a vacuum without understanding the context in which it was given. Um... When we're dealing with the law, we're dealing with a very ancient culture that's very remote both in time and in just the way they did everything. So we shouldn't be comparing the law to our own modern time and our modern understanding and where we're, we're standing. Does that make sense? We shouldn't be comparing it to us. We shouldn't be filtering it through our categories and how we understand things. Um, through the modern world, what we have through the modern, yeah, or modern world, what we have to do is we have to put it in proper perspective, and look at the context of that age, its culture, its beliefs, its practices, and it's what the scholar, it's what scholars call um, the ancient Near East. That's what A and E is. It's the ancient Near East, and I'm telling you, I mean, I think we have an idea of some of it, but that world is so foreign to us in so many ways in their assumptions, their beliefs, their practices. And I am not far off the mark when I say that, that cult, the cultures of that time were far from God's ideals in Genesis 1 and 2. By the way, the numbers on here, the hundred would represent the ultimate ideal, perfect ideal on both ends. And then I, I just was putting numbers up here trying to kind of give the sense of like, that's developing over time, so that's what the numbers are. The ancient Near Eastern culture was a culture whose social structures had been badly damaged by the fall, and it significantly deviated from the ideals of Genesis 1 and 2. It was a culture that found itself at the bottom of a long downward spiral that starts in Genesis 3 and we read about through Genesis, to where it, we were told in Genesis it was an age that was wicked, full of violence and full of corruption. The people living in those times were crude and uncultured in many ways. 
the cultures were ruthless and inhumane. And so it's, it's in that context that laws were actually written, and if you read the laws around them, those laws were also crude and uncultured, seemed harsh, violent, and inhumane. And so it's, it's to those laws that we have to compare the, the Old Testament law. Does that make sense? Not to our modern times, we've got to compare it to that. And so it was in this context, it was in this context that God stepped into history, rescued a people, created a nation, gave them a law book or a law code, a law code that was intended to separate them from, to set them apart from the surrounding culture. So I think we're good. Are we good with this so far? Now I want to say something, but be careful with this. The truth is, is that the law reflected the culture around them and the dominant consciousness of that day, including many fallen elements. So just hang with me a minute, all right? Some of those troubling institutions and customs were not totally eliminated and are still present in the Mosaic law. The law was written in that context to those people and a number of those civil laws were less than ideal compared to the creational ideas of Genesis 1 and 2. Now, before you take me out to the woodshed, I'm going to let Jesus come up and talk on, me, on my behalf, okay? Because it's hard to take him out to the woodshed, right? Um, and before I show you this thing Jesus says, I need to say something, a little aside. Um, don't let what Jesus says distract you from our issue of the law, okay? Don't, don't let it get distracted, distract you on a side issue. Um, this text I'm going to show you, I'm not using it to make a judgment on anybody. I'm only using it to explain the nature of the law. When we read this text, I am fully aware we still live in a broken world where many things happen that are not under our control and are not our ideal choice. And now you're really wondering, what in the world is he going to show us from Jesus? And here it is. In Matthew 19, some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Well, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, at the beginning, oh, sorry, that's not up there, that thing. If you imagine the drama, right? At the beginning, the creator made them male and female, pointing them to Genesis 1, and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, Genesis 2, that creational ideal. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, commanded? No, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. Okay, again, a little aside. I personally know individuals who were in a marriage that demonstrated high levels of human hard-heartedness on the other side. And in spite of all efforts at resolving the situation, had to leave for their own well-being. So I understand that, okay? So I'm not trying to make any judgment. So can we kind of leave that behind and get back to the law? Um, so with, with the Mosaic law, excuse me, with the Mosaic law, divorce law, God was permitting, not commanding. And that's a really important distinction. Because you see in the Mosaic divorce law, God wasn't putting forth an absolute ethic for all time that reflected his ideal. Um, so, taking that principle, returning to this divine, the civil law as a whole, 
here's what we see, that God is tolerating certain moral deficiencies and common societal structures and norms that were present at that time. So in the law, he was putting up with things that were less than ideal to him, and it was because of the hardness of human hearts. I think the fact is that human brokenness lay behind a large portion of the law. So here's what God was doing. God, and I think in a number of the civil laws, was adapting his ideals to a people whose attitudes and actions were influenced by deeply flawed social structures. And he instituted laws that began where the people were. In other words, God was meeting them halfway. He was meeting them halfway in the law. Yet, I think this is really important. Um, At the same time, he was also directing them towards a future greater ideal. So in the law, God was taking a ragtag group of people who lived in a particular setting, and he was taking them on a journey of incremental steps towards his ideal. Incremental steps towards his ideal. And as I will show in a minute, the law made a significant number of very important moral improvements without totally overhauling their way of life. This whole idea um, of incremental steps, I mean, isn't that, that's reality, right? I read a book comparing Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. Part of Washington's greatness was, is Jefferson was a total idealist and had a hard time working with real things in the real world. But Washington, though he held to ideals, understood reality and could work with things incrementally, step by step, moving towards an ideal. You know, really, how do you change something? Do you, how do you change an entire way of conceiving of things that people have thought and done for generations and generations? Do you just step in one day, rip it all out and say, hey, it's a new era begun and totally new way of living life? Or do you meet people with where they are, with the language they speak, in forms they're accustomed to, and you gradually introduce new ideas to help them make changes step by step? Really, what's the best way to bring about change? If something's totally foreign, it won't even be adopted or adapted, Right? I mean, haven't we seen that in our foreign policy? We go to a country, we do something, and then we say, okay, now that we've set you free from a tyrant, we're just gonna, now we're just gonna drop democracy in there. But what we're finding is, is that people in some cultures don't even have the worldview, those basic underlying assumptions that, that uphold democracy, and it doesn't even take root, right? It's because of this idea we can just dump something totally on somebody without this idea of incremental steps towards an ideal. So when the practicalities of life on the ground make it difficult to implement the ideal all at once, you make small incremental changes over time while keeping your eyes set upon the ideal. Uh, You know, God wanted to bring about moral revolution the West Coast style. I get probably the older guys in here kind of get what this is, right? You know, short pass after short pass after short pass after short pass down the field to finally get to the goal. Uh, I had to apologize to Sam that I didn't have a Joe Montana in a Chiefs uniform, but this is how we best remember him, I think, or at least me. And you know, this is how it's always been with God, this incremental steps towards the ideal. He has put up with inferior, less than ideal societal structures and human hardness for centuries, and he still does with us. Acts 17, 30 says, in the past, God overlooked the times of ignorance and is now declaring that all people everywhere should repent overlooked times of ignorance. God has always been this way. So what we see in the Bible is human, heart, God, human hardness, hard-heartedness is met by God's forbearance all the time, and he's willing to meet us halfway, not to leave us there, 
but then to take us where we are incrementally, step by step, to the place that he wants us. So throughout history, God's always put up with aspects of human fallenness, and he's adjusted accordingly. Um, He regularly works in and through sinful human beings, inefficient as it seems, to bring about his overarching purposes. Thank goodness for that, right? Thank goodness. So in the law, God works with the children of Israel as he finds them, he meets them where they are, while still seeking to point them and move them toward a higher ideal, something he knows will not only take centuries, but will take millennia. I hope to give you an example of this at the end. But this is what I especially want you to see about the law, this next part. Though many of Israel's civil laws weren't perfect and did not always reflect God's ultimate ideal, God made radical improvement over that time. When we compare these laws and the mindset they exhibit with the various law codes around them, they reveal a dramatic improvement over the practices of the other cultures at that time. There was nothing like this law code in the whole ancient world, not just the ancient Near East. Nothing at that time in the world matched this. The law for those people was a great leap forward. It was a radical advancement. The law was on the cutting edge of justice at that time. And it contained some ideas that were very revolutionary. So, um, yes, to us, those civil laws seem primitive. But to those people, it was progressive and it was redemptive. Progressive and redemptive. Let me give you a few just specifics. I don't have a lot of time for this. But punishments in ancient Near East law codes were very harsh. If you think the ones in the law are harsh, you ought to read those. Um, punishments were things like dragging people behind animals until they died, dismemberment, frequently cutting off hands, ears, other parts of the body, things still practiced in parts of the world, which is why my friend had rejected the religion he grew up with. Um, Punishment of, instead of you being punishment, you'd have to give up a daughter or a wife. If I, in a lot of those codes, if a man raped a woman, the punishment wasn't for him, but his wife would be taken and gang-raped in the community. Again, something else actually practiced in some parts of the world today. Um, But the biblical law had none of this, no dismemberment. Only the person would be punished. Um, the, the, The punishments in the law are very softened and humanized compared to the law codes around them. The Old Testament law was the first law in human history that has laws protecting workers and rights, specifically the Sabbath laws. It was the first law code that provided cities of refuge to prevent revenge killings. The laws around them at that time were very partial. The higher you were, the less the punishment. The lower you were, the greater the punishment. Um, In Leviticus, it's very clear. It says this law is to be applied equally to all people. So there was this, this leveling of people. And we've got the law of Jubilee in there, the, the every 50 years, um, the returning of all property back to original people. Something, an idea that was so radical that we still cannot even bring ourselves to practice it to this day. It's still even radical for us. And my wife last night, we were talking about this, she said, Garen, the essence of the law, we know the essence of the law is love God with all of your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind, and what's the other? Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you understand how radical that is? Love your neighbor as yourself? That if that one command alone was followed, it would have undone so much 
that was happening in the world at that time. And so much of that law would not even have had to have been followed. Very radical. If you've never read Thomas Cahill, The Gift of the Jews, it's a great book that goes into a lot more detail on this. So, despite some of Israel's problematic social structures and corresponding laws, Israel's legal system, legal system if it was faithfully followed, which as we know, they were not good at doing, uh, and sometimes neither are we, if it was faithfully followed, it created a morally preferable environment to other societies at that time. Now, you remember the third principle? Third principle is this, that we have to know the text's place in God's story. So we have to properly frame any text we're dealing with. Remember, we've got to read the Bible as an unfolding story. So I want to put the law in the, its place in the story, if you don't mind. And I don't know if I made this clearly when I was talking about the story, creation, corruption, restoration, but the story of the Bible is a story of forward, redemptive movement. Forward, redemptive movement. The law was part of God's forward, redemptive movement in two ways. First of all, looking back, the way the Mosaic law protected and elevated and humanized its treatment of women, slaves, servants, I'm going to come back, back at the end, foreigners, widows, the poor, orphans, and fugitives of war is actually pointing us back to the Genesis 1 and 2 ideal that all people are created in the image of God. Perhaps more importantly, moving forward. The law was also intended to push Israel to a higher level of justice than was ever known before. It was an important part of God's redemptive move towards an ultimate ethic, towards the eventual restoration of Genesis 1 and 2 ideals at new creation. It was a very important part of his move. In fact, um, in the law, this law that's so puzzling to us, were the seeds of a moral future revelation and the ultimate ethic. As Al has said, the law and the Old Testament as a whole was leading up to really one person. And who is that person? Jesus, the Messiah. The man whose lives and teachings and death and resurrection and ascension would revolutionize the world. In Jesus... And in the epistles, all the seeds of all the major social reforms that have ever happened since that time in the Western world are in Jesus, to, which, to who the law pointed. Those New Testament seeds that Jesus planted took root and grew and have been bearing fruit in the West for centuries and are now spreading throughout the world. If uh, you're not sure of that, I preached on that April 6th, uh, four years ago. Um, that topic of how Jesus has influenced culture. So if it's something you want to listen to, you can get a hold of it. Um, so here's what's really ironic. Whenever somebody looks back on the law standing in critique, they're actually looking back from the high ground established by Jesus to whom the law was ultimately pointing. They're actually standing on Jesus' ethical shoulders, so to speak. Isn't that cool? So the thing, the person the law was actually directing us to if we stand in critique on it, we're actually standing in critique on, an, on a moral system that we owe to Jesus. A lot, so much of how we look at right and wrong in the world today, human rights and all of that, is, was, that foundation was laid by Jesus. 
So, in summary, the law was as a whole code, it was not a permanent divine ideal for all people everywhere. It was not a permanent divine ideal for all people everywhere. First, it was particular, not universal. It was a national law code that applied only to the nation of Israel at that specific time in history. I'm referring to the law as a whole code. It only applied to Israel at that time in history. It was, and to no other nation, it was only written for them. Two, it was temporary, not permanent. The law existed until Messiah came, the one to whom it all pointed, the one who had established a new covenant through his blood shed on the cross. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews talks about that. John 5, Jesus says, you read the Old Testament scriptures, don't you understand? They point to me. It's all about me. Um, there's a scripture in Romans that says that the law was all pointing to Jesus Messiah. And third, as we saw, it was never meant to be the supremely ideal law code. It was never meant to be that. The law, it was not the ultimate ideal, and that, that just wasn't what God was doing. He was using it to redemptively move people from where they were towards the greater ideal, towards Jesus, who would, be, who would lay the foundation of new creation eventually. So, that's kind of, uh, that's, that's what he and I had coffee about with that diagram. If you're interested, this diagram um, is back there on the Welcome Center. I see Mark eyeing it right now, so, but if you want to grab one on the way out, you can. As I was doing this, I actually, my friend asked me a question, and then there's two more questions that came up. So here's, here's one of his questions. Well, why not just cut the law part out of that whole Bible and get rid of it? Because it really offended me. It just, okay, he said, okay, this makes sense. Why not just cut it out and get rid of it? Kind of Thomas Jefferson style. Um, and, I, and I said, I mean, no, it was a necessary part of God's old, flan, old unfolding plan. There is a story the Bible is telling, and it's an important part of the story. Um, the key to remember is, though, that it was a necessary part of God's story. It wasn't the final word. It was never his final word. So then the question, well, then, so therefore, none of the law applies to me then. You just chuck the whole thing out, and man, just none of it applies. And I would say this, what I just said does not mean it's all temporary and all not universal. The law as a whole national code is temporary, but the moral commands, things against like theft, murder, other parts of the moral component of the law, they have enduring relevance to us today, to all people of all times, of all cultures. The Old Testament does supply us with plenty of permanent universal moral rights. And here's how you know. Do you know how you know which ones are intended for all people in all times? They're repeated again and again and again and again in the prophets and in Jesus and the gospels and in the epistles and in Revelation. That's how you know what moral law God was universal and is part of his ideal and applies to all people of all time. And then the third question was, well, so does this all mean the law is bad? Does that mean it's all bad? Well, Romans 7:12 says the law is good. So as we just said, the law was intended to point us and prepare us for Jesus. And it perfectly fulfilled its purpose. Right? Showed us our sin. Showed us our need for sacrifice and substitution to pay for our sin, to enter into God's presence. It perfectly set us up for its purpose. And I can't say it any better than Al said it last week. So I'm going to quote him. Now that the Messiah has come, we are relieved from the law. 
not because it was a bad thing to be abolished, but because it was a good thing that had served its purpose and whose time had come to an end. It's pretty well said, Al. Um, yeah, I, I'm not going to do this. I wish I could even show you. You know, sometimes um, C.S. Lewis talks about Western people struggle with chronological snobbery, that we think we're better than old people. You know, oh, we don't, we don't need incremental steps. We're just morally superior. I mean, but the, the truth is in history that, that hum, we're so slow in getting things, right, that even when the Magna Carta was written, which was a huge, great, radical leap forward for people that time, but if you look back at the Magna Carta, you're like, what was that? It was like, all it did is it just gave Parliament a little bit of, like, se separated from the king a little bit, but then he didn't even follow it. So it's, to us, it's like, you know, that thing, that was so backwards, that, that thing. That was nothing. But it actually planted a seed that took 500 years of modern humanity, 500 years for us to kind of get it and say all men are created equal, right, in our declaration. But, um, but we, I mean, don't, even moderns, we still struggle with that, right? Even though it said that, the, the freeing of the slaves was another 150 years later. But then even after that, there were still laws that, that really didn't make it happen, right? Even in the 60s, that wasn't that long ago. And now that we got rid of that, there's still people that wrestle with racial issues. I mean, their feelings towards other races. So even modern people, we need slow incremental movement. I mean, it's, we're no different. No different. Um... Can I quickly address slavery? Because that's an issue. I have a friend who has a brother. That's his big deal with the Bible is the law and slavery. As an example of this, chattel slavery, chattel slavery is the slavery we had in the South, where it's buying and selling, trafficking of humans as property, it's buying and selling, keeping them for life. That was very common in the ancient Near East. We see it in Joseph's story. He's sold into slavery. Um, but in the Bible, in the Old Testament law, when it talks about slaves, the Hebrew word evid is probably actually best translated servant. It's not talking about chattel slavery, that owning of humans. It's talking about indentured servanthood. It's talking about people who have a debt and then work for somebody to pay the debt off. Um, that's what it's talking about. You can look in 2 Kings 4.1 and see an example of this. Very similar to what we had in the U.S. at the beginning of our history. Do you know in the, in the 1600s that one, one half to two-thirds of all people who immigrated to America were indentured servants? The majority were indentured servants, either paying off debt back in Europe or paying their passage on the boat over, working generally for seven years for somebody until they were released. That's what is in the Old Testament law. In fact, Exodus 21.16 said that if you kidnapped a person to sell them as a slave, the, the penalty was death. It forbid the buying, the kidnapping, buying, and selling of human beings. In fact, in the Old Testament law, lifelong indebted servitude was prohibited. In fact, we know they could only work six years, even if the debt wasn't paid off. Seventh year, all indentured servants had to be released. If you, you could not mistreat or beat, do anything to mistreat an indentured servant. If you did, the law says immediately they're released into freedom. If somebody ran, if he wouldn't release them, if they ran away because they were being mistreated, the law specifically said they could not be returned to the person they were working to pay their debt off to. 
um, actually very radical for that time. In Jeremiah 34, part of God's anger at Israel is that they were keeping indentured servants. They would have them pay off a debt, and even after they'd paid them off, they would keep them longer than the six years the law had commanded. Then you come to Paul, and Paul's living in the middle of a culture, not the ante, but he's living in a Roman Empire where chattel slavery is very common again, and he has got to, God through Paul is doing the same process, incremental steps, right? So Paul does talk about, you know, if you're a master, if you're, if you're a slave, here's how you relate to each other, but Paul was against it and was planting, Jesus and Paul were planting the seeds of the elimination of slavery. Um, in Galatians 3, 1 Corinthians 12, Colossians 3, one of Paul's core statements is, in Jesus Christ, there is no male, female, no Greek, Jew, no slave or free. We are all one in the Messiah, something that is the seed of eliminating that idea. In Philemon, the first letter he wrote, he specifically commands Philemon to let Onesimus go. We know from church history, he did let him go. And Onesimus became um, the primary elder of the church in Colossae. In 1 Timothy 1.10, Paul specifically says slave trading is a sin in Revelation 18, 13. At the final judgment, before new creation, the final judgment, God is listing the things in the world that he hates and is going to destroy. And in, in Revelation 18, 13, it says trafficking in humans through slavery. So um, that's just an example of how God was transforming that. Let me read this statement. The Bible and specifically the law is not pro-slavery. It never has been. It's actually the record of the beginning of a continuous movement toward the goal of full freedom and equality for all people. That's what the Bible teaches about slavery. You know when the slave trade began in the 1500s? Where they were, buy, they were kidnapping Africans, buying them, selling them, shipping them overseas. If they had followed the law, the Old Testament law, that never would have happened. That practice was against the Old Testament law. So... That's where we stand with the law. Um, how do you apply this? Um, number one, if you ever encounter somebody that has questions about Christian, they're offended by the law, um, you know, grab one of these or get this from me, but I hope that this can help you with that. If you're ever reading through the law and you're going to read stuff, you're going to go like, oh, ow, whoa. And you're like, why is that in there? Just what I do is I step back and I remind myself of this. Oh, right, I've got to put it in its context, in its part in the story. Okay, right. That makes it a little easier to read some of that stuff. Um, if you're here and you're not, have not committed to Jesus yet and don't know him, the law was pointing to him and I want to point you to him. He is the one who can set you free, who can save you from your sin, your guilt, and your shame who can give you a new life, and if you believe in him, he will raise you from the dead, and we will live in our resurrected bodies on a new perfect creation with him forever and ever, and so I invite you to come to him. If you're at a point you want to talk to somebody about Jesus, I am more than happy to have you come up and do that after. Finally, uh, if you here aren't, you're not a believer, and you're still like, um, let me just say this, don't let lame critiques of the Bible, and a lot of the critiques are lame, sidetrack you from actually reading the story. I want to challenge you to get into the Bible. I think you'll find rather than being an old, outdated, boring book, that it, 
I agree with the Bible Project, which says, we believe that the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus, and it has profound wisdom for the modern world. I think you will find that. So I invite you to the Word of God. And I want to finish with one final thing. Isn't God beautiful? Do you see the beauty of God in this? Do you see his beauty? Look how orderly he is. Look how perfect he is, taking a broken world, wanting to move it back to how he intended it to be. But where I really see his beauty is his willingness to meet people halfway where they are and gradually, incrementally, with his forbearance and grace, move us just a little step closer to being in the image of Jesus. Isn't it beautiful how he deals with people? Instead of just come crashing in and he just deals so graciously with us. So let's rest under the grace of God. Let's be attracted to that beauty of him, of how he deals with broken people, because we're all broken. So can we all stand and pray? Dear Father, um, I do stand in awe of your beauty, that you created a world that was so good, and that you, that though we broke that world, that Adam and Eve, that if I had been there, I would have rebelled and broken that world, that you are graciously and lovingly taking it back to its original design. You just didn't throw it away. I'm so thankful that you take me where I am in my life, in my brokenness and the ways I fit into my culture that, that don't fit in with who you are, and you graciously and lovingly move me just one step at a time, making me more and more like your son and letting your glory shine a little, little more inside of me to reflect who you are. I'm so thankful for your grace. So may we all live under your grace this week, striving to meet your ideal, but living under that grace because you just meet us where we are. And we just pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.